Amen. Hey, good morning. And it is morning. Hey, I really uh, thank you for um, whether you're at the nine o'clock because it works better time wise for you or uh, because you just um, want to support what we're doing here at South and, and help this service get off the ground. I want to say thank you um, for for just for being here at the nine o'clock. Uh, I love seeing all of you and uh, praise God uh, about what he's doing here at South. We are starting a new series this morning and it's called Storyline and, and the subtitle is Living a Better Story. Um, I, I've been a little bit haunted by this series, to be honest with you, because as I've thought about sort of my life in, in, in a story, um, I've come to realize that there's a good many days, weeks, months where I live a pretty boring story. Um, I saw the movie, this is years ago, but I saw the movie The Truman Show. Um, and the whole premise of the movie The Truman Show was this, uh, this man is filmed from birth and throughout his whole life and they turn his life into a movie. I mean, you think about that or a TV show that's broadcasted, everybody else watches him live. And, and you, you think about that and what would it be like to have your life, to have my life filmed sort of at, at every turn, to have our life turned into a story. Drama. drama. <laughs> yes, yeah, some of us would be, it would be a drama. Some of ours would be a comedy. Some of ours would just be downright boring. None of us, we all know what it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be a romantic comedy. I mean, because those are just ridiculous, right? I mean... But, but I think, here's, here's the truth of the matter. I think our lives are more like a story than we probably at times would like to believe. I love the way, I love the way uh, that Donald Miller puts it um, in his book. And he writes this, every life is a story. Whether it's a story worth telling and talking about, though, that is up to you. People set out with grand dreams of changing the world, of falling in love doing something amazing. But the drift toward the merely acceptable happens almost without notice. That does not have to be your life, he writes. And I've I've wrestled with that. I've wrestled with, is that one, is that my life? And two, if it is, what are the decisions that I make? What are the, the sort of the ideas that I embrace and the truth that I live in that allows that to not be my life? The, just the, the drift towards the merely acceptable. To sort of cash in the chips a little bit and go, all right, I, I can't achieve what I hoped I would. And so I'm just going to settle for way less than what God is actually really inviting me to. Here's what I've realized, is that the same things that make for a good story make for a good life. The same things that make for a good story make for a good life. If you were to go back and look at the movies that you love, um, in, in his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, Donald Miller argues that, that any story is simply this. It's a main character who overcomes conflict to get something that they want. A character who overcomes conflict to get something that they want. And here's the deal. Over the next few weeks, here's what I would love to invite you into. I want to invite you to sort of look at your life as story. Uh, if, if it were a movie, what would the, what would the trailer be? 
What would the highlights be? What would the twists, what would the turns be? To, to sort of lay our lives over this sort of idea of story. And I want to ask a simple question. How do we live a better story? Because I don't know about you, but I want to get to the end of my life and say, I've, I've spent the time, I've spent the energy, I've spent the resources. Well, God, that you have given me. But I think if we were to be honest, if I were to be honest, a lot of times that's just simply not true. So I want to look at over the next few weeks, how do we live a better story? And and what we're going to do is we're going to take a journey with Paul through the book of Acts and look at these different twists and turns in the book of Acts that allow Paul to get to the end of his life and say what he's going to say to us today. Because here's the truth of the matter, friends, is that none of us will get to the end and say we've lived well on accident. It just won't happen. I mean, we won't get to the end and think I've I've done I've lived for God's glory. I've made an impact. I've I've done things that he called me into. It will not happen by accident. It will only happen by us laying our lives in front of him and saying, use me for whatever you have. Use me for your glory. Use me for your name. Look at the way that Paul, look at the way that Paul is starting to summarize his life. He's writing this, and we're going to start in 2 Timothy today, chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can open there. And then the rest of the series will be out of the book of Acts. But I wanted to start with the end. I wanted to start with the end and listen to what Paul says as he reflects on his life, sitting in a Roman jail, looking back on his life, this is what he says. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Just a quick time out. This is an analogy to the Old Testament. It's an offering that they would give. But he's saying, this is what my my life is. (laughs) My my life is an offering, God. and, And I feel like I'm being poured out to you. I'm being poured out in front of you that you can use me for your name and, and for your glory. Did you know that, that there will come a day where, you're, where you will look back on your life and it'll be, it'll be a memory. Some of you, it already is, right? I mean, all of us, it already is in some way, shape or form. And we'll look back and we will have spent our life on something. And that's just true. We will have spent our life on something. And he says this, I'm being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. So Paul knows, hey, this is his second time in a Roman prison. He knows that it's not looking good. And so he takes a moment in this letter that he writes to Timothy to reflect and to look back on the story of his life. And what he says is going to be absolutely fascinating. But what I want to challenge us all with is that we will be in this day at some point. We'll be there at some point, looking back on our lives, asking the question, did I spend the time? Did I spend the energy? Did I spend the resources that God gave me? Did I spend them well? Did I spend them on things that matter? Or did I waste them on on little trinkets when I could have given them to the glory in the name of God? See, hindsight's always 2020, isn't it? And this morning, we're going to benefit from Paul's hindsight, from his 2020 vision, looking back on his life and recounting for us the things that, that made his life matter. 
The, the things that, that filled out the storyline and, and made it not a, not a boring story, but a story that, that people are still reading about to the glory of God. I, I love the way that Moses, in, in that same psalm we started our morning with, uh, writes this. And he says, so teach us to number our days. Lord, remind us that, that we only have a certain amount of days walking this earth. Is, it, is, is Moses just morbid in writing? No, he's intentional. Listen to what he says. That we may get a heart of wisdom. Do you know that there's certain things as you walk this road of life that you gain as you go that you can't gain any other way? And that's why, that's why at South we are ruthlessly committed to not just being multi-generational and having a lot of different generations here. Um, we are going to be as intentional as we can be about being intergenerational. We, we want older people to rub shoulders with younger people. We'll let you define if you're the older or the younger why though? Because there's something that happens as you live where you, you gain, you gain wisdom. And the more we realize, hey, the more we realize that our days are numbered, the better story we will live. Because the only stories that end well, like Paul, are the stories that live well. You've never seen a movie that just totally redeemed itself in the end. That was horrible all the way, and then a great ending. The stories that live, the stories that end well, are the stories that live well. And so the question becomes, how do we do that? Well, Paul's going to write to us and let us know. Here's what he says: I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is his, this is, this is Paul, sort of his three point message. If you want to live a, a great story, he's going to say, as I look back on my life and I look back on the twists and I look back on the turns and I look back on the joys and I look back on the challenges, these are the pillars of what makes Paul's life what it is where he can look back in the end and say it was worth living. It was worth living. These are the things that, that make it just not a, not a story worth recounting, but a story worth living and a story worth telling and a story worth being about. And, and I want this for me. I want this for you because there is some unbelievable power in what Paul writes to us in this passage. And so I want to dissect it with you this morning as we launch into this series storyline. This is going to be sort of our foundation our introduction if you will and this is what he says i have fought the good fight i fought the good fight his implication is there's there's a fight to be had and there's some good fights you can spend your life on and there's some not so good fights you can spend your life on there's some good ambitions you can spend your life on and there's some ambitions where you'll get to the end and they will let you down. And what Paul, looking back in a Roman jail, looking back over the decades of his life, says is that one of the things that made all the difference in the world to me is that I engaged in the right battle. I engaged in the right fight. And so here's the deal. If we want to live a story 
worth telling. I think what Paul is telling us is focus our, focus our energy on holy ambition, not on common pursuits. And, and hey, I'm going to be the first to admit to you, this is hard for me. This is difficult. As I was reading this book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, um, Donald Miller, he writes this, and I thought that this was just fascinating. He writes, the thing that I never realized while I was studying marketing, so he used to be in in marketing, and he, he writes this book with the perspective of editing his life in order to make a movie about it. Uh, in advertising, or marketing, was the process of advertising products is in many ways a manipulation of the elements of story. It's like I was telling you about an in- inciting incident disrupting the sp- stability of a character's life, throwing him or her into a story. Advertising does exactly this. We watch a commercial advertising a new Volvo, and suddenly we feel our life isn't as content as it once was. <laughs> Our, our life doesn't have that Volvo in it. And the commercial convinces us that we will only be content if we have a car with 47 airbags. And so we begin our story of buying a Volvo only to repeat the story with a new weed eater and a new home stereo. And this can only go on for, and this can go on for a lifetime. And when the credits of our story roll, we wonder what we did with our lives and what the meaning actually was. His point is, let's let's take a bigger picture of what we're focusing our energy on, of what we're focusing our passion on, and and is it going to be things that in the end really matter? I mean, if our life is a story and one day the, the credits will roll, if, if our climactic scene is, is the bigger house or the, the newer job or the you fill in the blank, is that really the story we want to live? Because a lot of us pour our energy, myself included, a lot of us pour our energy and our time and our resources into things that aren't necessarily holy ambition. They're just common pursuits. Did you know that you see around 3,000 commercials every single day? And it's not just on TV, but on billboards and on radio. And, and you, we have advertising flooding into us ad nauseum. And it's easy to compromise holy ambition and settle for common pursuits, isn't it? And this morning, I just want to fast forward to the end and to say, really, let's couch it in the reality of what's really going to matter in the end. And I don't know if we should be quite, a, quite as afraid of failing as we should be of succeeding in things that really just don't matter. I think it's maybe more dangerous for us as people that we are successful in things that in the end won't matter than if we try things that completely fail. See, see, Jesus addresses this with a guy that we call the rich young man. Listen to what he writes in in the book of Matthew. Because he's going to confront this this man and he's going to invite him into a better story. Listen to this encounter Jesus has with this man. 
It says, And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? See, this guy realizes, hey, the story that I'm living is only going to be a flash in the pan like Moses told us at the beginning of this. That it's going to be done at some point. And so he wants to know, hey, what do I do with my time? What do I do with my life that allows me to go further and further and on and into eternal life? This is his question to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, why do you ask me what's good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commands. He's going to, he's going to, Jesus is going to sort of throw out a few little softballs in a sense to this guy, because he's going to encounter two of the main things that hijack our story. One of them is simply settling for obedience when God is inviting us into relationship. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. And in his head, he's going, check, 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 done, yep. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the rich young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, if you would be whole, if you would be complete, literally, Go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come what? Follow me. Follow me. You see, this, this guy's story, as we're going to see in just a moment, stops at I'm just going to obey. And, and hey, let me just, I'll speak honest with you. This is the majority of Christianity is, hey, just wrote obedience, dutiful obedience, just do it and then God will be happy with you. And Jesus says, I'm not, I'm interested in your obedience because it leads you to me, but I don't want you to stop there. Listen to what he says. And when, uh, and he says, and when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I've wondered about this guy. I've wondered what his story eventually ended up being like. I've wondered what his life turned into. I, I wonder if this few-minute conversation with Jesus of saying, will you live a better story? It doesn't just have to be about your obedience. It doesn't just have to be about your stuff and the material possessions that you have. But will, will you live a better story, a story worth telling? Will you, will you come and will you follow me wherever I lead you, whatever I do? I wonder if this five-minute conversation with Jesus just totally changes this guy's life. I, I wonder if it haunts him a little bit. I wonder if the words replay in his mind and he just thinks, man, I, I could have lived a better story. But I said no. See, here's the truth of the matter, friends, is that it, it, Jesus is inviting all of us today to step into the holy ambition that he's called us to, to follow him, to chase after him, wherever he leads, where, wherever he says to go, whatever he says to do, he's inviting us. And it is an invitation because he is for you and for your joy. See, here's a, the truth of the matter is this. The ambition that you embrace will eventually become the story that you live. 
So, maybe the most important question that I could ask you today is, what do you want? What do you want with your life? What do you want for your life? What do you want? Because it shapes who we are. It shapes who we become. We don't refer to this guy in Matthew chapter 19 as a disciple. We refer to him as the rich young man. That, that was his story. That's what he chose. And I wonder what we'll choose. What we'll decide we want our life to be about. And will it be worth it? Here's the way that Paul continues. He says this, I fought the good fight. His second thing is, I finished the race. I finished the race. It's obviously an, an allusion to Olympic Games. It's an allusion to competition and to athletics. And he's saying, listen, life was not easy. It was a, it was a race. It was a race. And, I, and it took my energy and it took my time and it took my dedication and my discipline and my focus It was a race. And here's what I think his encouragement to us would be today. It's to give our all when it's easier to give up. He uses the analogy of a race intentionally because he wants us to to enter in with him that life wasn't easy. And I think I'm part of... um, what I'm, what I'm starting to call the tap-out generation. Where things get, things get difficult, and we're like, hey, I'm done. I'm out. There's no such thing as an entry-level job for somebody in their 20s anymore. We don't, we don't want it. Don't, don't, don't ask us to do that. We just want, we want to be the CEO automatically already. We are averse to adversity in many ways. This is just my observation of working with college students for the last five years. And Paul says, no, it was a, it was a race. And there were times where, where I felt like giving up. And there were times where it got hard. And there were times where it got difficult. And there were times where I didn't feel like I was doing a great job. And, and, and I didn't really even see God moving in that many ways. But I kept running the race. I kept putting one foot in front of the other. Why? Because I knew that I wasn't at the finish line yet. I knew that I wasn't there yet. I knew that there was more that God was inviting me to, that there was a greater challenge he was calling me to embrace. I, um, I love it that my son, he's, he's a little over four years old now, and so he's at the age of, um, we, we went and got our first baseball glove. By, we, by our first baseball glove, I mean his first baseball glove. <laughs> Yesterday, and it's, it's just, it's awesome. I love playing baseball with, my, with Ethan. Um, and he does not want to hit off a tee. He wants me to pitch it to him, and so that's what we do. And so we we play baseball in the backyard, and I throw it to him, and I try to hit that bat as hard as I can, you know. Um, and he gets so upset when he misses. And he swings, and he misses, and then he hits the bat on the ground. I mean, I'm like watching a picture of myself as a kid. It's re- He hits his bat on the ground, and then he runs around the yard screaming. And I'm like, take a deep breath, buddy. And I try to unpack the, 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 the reality and the logic of this that, hey, major league, the best major league baseball players fail seven out of ten times. And, and he just, that doesn't matter to him. 
He's four. You tried reasoning with a four-year-old lately? Not going to happen. And I, and I thought, as I saw him do this yesterday, I thought, how many of us never grow out of that? This is difficult. This is hard. And I'm out. This is difficult. And what Paul says is, hey, give your all when it's easier to just cash it in and give up. I started to wonder, what allows Paul to say that? What is it that he believes about his life, about his story, about who God is that allows him to continue when it's easier to just cash it in and give up? And I think if you keep reading in 2 Timothy chapter 4, you get to verse 8, and here's what he says. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness, which is, which is God's perfection purchased by Jesus on the cross given to Paul. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know what, you know what allows Paul to keep going when, when life gets hard, when the, when the journey gets difficult? Is he remembers, one, Jesus has been ridiculously good to me. And it came at a ridiculously high price. And if that taints our lens, if that shapes the way that we see the things that come into our life and the trials that come into our life, everything changes. Everything changes. If our, if our view is Jesus, if he's, our, if he's our reward, then it shapes everything. It changes everything. And I just wonder how many times Paul just felt like cashing it in. I mean, you read through the end of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 27 and 28. And Paul is shipwrecked, open sea for days, gets onto dry land, makes a fire, and a snake comes and a viper comes and bites him. Now, I don't know about you, but at that point, God and I are having a little bit of a conversation. And it goes like this. Seriously? Seriously. Like, like I was just treading water for days. You didn't think that was enough, and now I'm warming myself around the fire, and I get bitten by a snake? Are you kidding me? Really? And I mean, how much easier is it for Paul at that point to just say, I'm out. I'm out. But years later, in a Roman jail, he looks back on his life and he says, I didn't give up. It would have been easier to. I didn't. I finished the race. Will we be able to say the same thing, friends? I think in the end, maybe one of our greatest regrets will be I gave up earlier than God wanted me to. For some of you, you're close right now. You're close today. You're close today to just cashing it in. And it may be on a marriage, on a relationship. You're close to cashing it in and, and your kids are just a mess. And you're going, all right, I'm, I'm close to writing them off. Your, your business is just going downhill. And you're saying, I'm close. I'm close to giving up. I think what Paul says to us is, you know what makes for a story that you look back on and go, that was a life well lived, is that when it's easier to cash it in, you stay in and you press deeper and you trust Jesus and you keep walking with him even when it's easier to give up 
I think that will allow us in the end to look back and say, yeah, it's a story well lived. And so, Paul continues and he says this, I fought the good fight. I finished the race and I kept the faith. He says, I have preserved the faith that I have in Jesus. See, see, what Paul's saying is I, I, I took Jesus at his word. I believed him even when it got dark, even when the nights got long, even when I was open sea shipwreck, even when I got bitten by the snake, even when I got dragged outside the city and tried to be, they tried to kill me. Even then I kept the faith. I took Jesus at his word. I built my life on what he said. I took him for who he was and I believed him completely. He was the pillar and the foundation. And Paul says in the end, I trusted his counsel, his guidance, his leading. That's what it means to live by faith. That's what it means to to keep the faith is that in the difficult times in life, we remember that Jesus is good and that he's for us. A life that grows in faith, ironically, is something that many of us don't want though. And we say we do, we say we do. But when we really unpack that the life of faith is a life of dependence. It's saying to Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need you to show up. I need your wisdom. I need your counsel. I need your goodness. I need your grace. I I need you. That's the life of faith. And I think what Paul says is I understood something about me and I understood something about my ambition and I understood something about my story. And if you know anything about Paul, he starts out zealous Pharisee persecuting the church, doing everything he can to fight against this movement of God. And when he says here, I kept the faith, what he's saying is I grew smaller and Jesus grew bigger. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I decided and I, and I understood that dependence on God was actually the path to making my story worth living. Many of us want independence. True Christian growth is actually dependence. It's growing in dependence on God, not independence. And so here's what Paul says. He says this. You live a story worth telling when you understand that when you shrink, ironically, your story actually grows. When you shrink, your story grows. And I think a lot of us, if we were to analyze, all right, what, what, why aren't our lives, why don't we live the type of life like Paul where we can look back on it and go, all right, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Why don't we live lives where we look back and go, yes and amen? I think a lot of us live with the wrong main character. I, I think a lot of us live with the wrong main character. And hey, main character makes all the difference in the story, doesn't it? Can you imagine, like, um, the movie Braveheart? Instead of Mel Gibson, you have, like, Keanu Reeves leading the charge. Are you kidding me? 
I think a lot of us live with the wrong main character where, where what happens is, is sin curves us in on us. And so we're just all about us and we are the main character in our story. But what, Jesus, what, what Paul says is that through faith, here's what I learned, is that when I gave God my story, it actually grew. It actually grew. Look at the way that John records this and this is john the baptist right or saying this he says he he must increase he being jesus and i must decrease ironically the best stories that you hear as far as people who make much of jesus who live for his glory who live for his name are stories of people who by faith cling to the cross, they know that they are in desperate need of grace daily. And where they shrink, and he grows. And he grows. I want to um, invite Sue to come up and share part of, her, part of her testimony about the way that God's grace has just really shaped her, changed her, made her, and in the same way that Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm completely sold out, focused on faith in God, belief in who he is, and the fact that I am not without him. There's a mic right there. Uh, I, I want to invite you into Sue's story as well. And so, Sue, will you share with us? Yeah, you're good. Sure. I'm, I'm going to try to read this because I know if I try to add a little bit, I could go on for probably 15 minutes. So. So today I'm going to share with you a snapshot of the story God has been telling through my life. The snapshot took place over the last couple of years, but began nine and a half years ago. Um, God has changed the way I live my life. He's shown me through this time that my focus need only be on him and that my identity is directly related to what Jesus did on the cross for me, not how I think I should live. So nine and a half years ago, we moved to Houston, and ten days later, Pete came to me, my husband, um, saying, what if I told you to pack your bags? We're moving back to Denver. And I said, they're packed. (laughs) When are we leaving? But at that moment, I knew right then and there that the right decision was to go to the Lord and say, what do you think? You know, I was mature enough in my faith that I knew better. But I knew that if I, if I went and saw him, he might say, no, no, I'm going to have you stay in Houston. So you can already see, you know, um, where this is going. So Peter, Pete, my husband, never felt like moving to Houston was the right decision. So, you know, different perspectives, different journeys. But I knew what was clear to me. It was my heart. So some years later, I started desiring and distrusting enough to ask some questions and I can remember people saying, oh, you don't want to go there. Oh, don't go there. But I knew, I guess at this point, like, I didn't want to hold back. And I said, Lord, I want you to go there. And now, of course, I didn't know where there was, except that I knew that place seemed pretty scary. But I was giving him permission. So somewhere between moving back to Denver and asking God to go there, my life seemed to take a nosedive. I saw it mostly in relationships and interactions with others knee-jerk reactions, willful disobedience. And in God's amazing grace, he allowed me to walk a pretty reckless, rough road until he got my attention. And as I was um, uh, assessing my, day, my life one day, 
I said, Lord, when did this all begin? You know, I could see kind of knee-jerk reactions, relationships with others, just kind of. And he just responded in one word, and that was Houston. He didn't need to say anything else. I knew what, what he meant by that. And I just immediately prayed and asked him to forgive me and to cleanse me. Um, and now, then some few years had passed since I'd asked God to go there. And it was clear that even in all those knee-jerk reactions and the relationship issues and all that, that really what God was after was for me to see my heart as it really was. And then our granddaughter came into this world, our first granddaughter. We have two, but our first one came into the world. And I can remember just holding her while she slept. And I just thought, wow, she's amazing. I mean, she is just precious and she's, I just love her. And there wasn't anything she had to do. There wasn't anything she didn't do. She was just Emory Annabelle. Just, and so at that moment, I really had just been looking at how God loves me. There's nothing I do or not do. He just loves me. When I sin, I break fellowship with him. That's, that's what's going on. So um, it was neat just for him to show me that and that my responsibility is to confess and repent. He does the rest. So then I came, um, we were studying Isaiah this year, and it was Isaiah 54, 5. And the verse um, says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And I remember in this Bible study, the teaching leader was sharing about Jesus being your husband. And at that moment, moment, clarification about Houston became very clear. Because I'd always said, you know, the worst sin I could do, of course, all sins I know, is, you know, separates you from God. But I remember just thinking the worst sin I could do would be to have an affair on my husband. And when she said that Jesus was my husband, I thought, wow, I didn't have an affair on my husband. I had an affair on Jesus, who is my husband. So um, I just it was just like, wow. Um, when I decided to call the shots in my life, I was actually turning my back on Jesus, my husband. So Houston represented me stepping over a big line in my heart. If I could step over that line, all the other lines were pretty easy to step over. So after the study ended, I decided to seek a Christian counselor who could help me navigate some of this. And while seeing her, were there two specific things that changed that were just, uh, I think Ryan has said, life changers or game changers. And these two really um, changed my life. One of them was um, while I was seeing her, I was, it was a Sunday morning. I was sitting in my family room, and I just said, Lord, what is it Jana sees and probably others see that I just don't see? What is it? So I'm going to put the microphone down and explain what that looked like. Um, so what he showed me was this. He showed me that I was holding on to him, but I was also holding on to my husband. Like that place in my heart that really belonged all to him. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, um, I have a choice here. And I've made some pretty bad choices up until this time. And I want to make the right choice because I don't want to hold back. And so I said, okay. And I just let go. And at that moment, everything in the house went still. There wasn't a sound moving, nothing. And at that time, though, I can just remember so much freedom in my heart. And I just said, the Lord is my Savior, and he is my Lord. And so um, so that was one thing. And the next thing was just... Um, 
Jaina had asked me to go home, and she said, I want you to take a piece of paper, and I want you to fold it into eights. And she said, I want you to list every role you play at the top of each, you know, rectangle. So I'm folding my paper, and I go, oh, I get what she wants me to do. <laughs> and I stopped right then. I said, she wants me to see I have one role, and that role is I'm a daughter of the king, period. And if I live my life out of that one place, everything else will be as exactly how Jesus wants me to live my life. So he got to see um, my heart, all that. Um, So names, labels, and lies come from man. And when I live out of the reality that I am a child of God, covered by his grace, forgiven, loved, all of my sins covered, I've just been living a different life. So God used my disobedience, idol worship, false identities to show me that I had replaced him with many things. And you know what? If I had to walk that road again, I'd do it because I would not be here today in this place in my relationship with Jesus. If I had just, I don't know, I guess kept living the way I was living or just even, but God is relentless. He doesn't leave us. He knows what he's after. And he knew what he was after in my heart. Um, So what about your story? Is God trying to get your attention? Are there heart issues that he wants to address with you? Is your identity in Christ and what he did for you on the cross? Who or what is in your way of having a single focus on Christ? Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. He is crazy in love with you. And he is relentless, like I said. So my prayer is that you'll let Jesus have your way, his way. So in closing, I came across this this morning, which I just thought was awesome. It said, Christ still does the recycling work today, taking the garbage of people's lives and fashioning masterpieces of grace, reclaiming prostitutes and murderers, lepers and beggars, greedy executives and desperate housewives, and transforming them into life-size trophies of love. when Paul says, I've kept the faith. I, I've, I've finished the race. I've fought the good fight. I think that's what he's saying. Jesus has become my all. And he is completely worthy. And he's completely worth it of every little single piece of my heart, of my life. And as he looks back on his life, I think he says, that's what made all the difference in the world. That's what made all the difference in the world. And we have the chance this morning to celebrate that he's worth it. To celebrate that he's worthy. Because my question, if I were you, would be, well, well, why is he worthy and worth it of, of my whole life, of, of, of my faith, of my hope, of my, of my every dream? Why, why should I give him my life? Why should I shrink that he might grow? It's a great question. You should shrink that he might grow because he left heaven and came to earth that you might leave earth and go to heaven. That's why. That's why. Because he's a God who says, I love you, I'm passionate about you, and I want to be with you. Here's the problem with you and with me is that we forget. We forget often 
And so for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been celebrating communion, the Lord's table, where it's our, it's our reminder there's a bigger story being told. There's a bigger story being told. That God is rescuing mankind. Redeeming them and bringing them back into relationship with God. And this morning we have the chance to celebrate that together. That on that night when Jesus 